Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke 2, that's 1 through 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, in order to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Lord Jesus, who 2,000 years ago lay in a feeding bowl, I ask that the undeserved grace of Your Spirit allow me to let this text say what it says through me and to our hearts. In Jesus, Your precious name. Amen. You know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And familiarity can breed a lack of impact. This morning, this passage of Scripture is probably the most, if not one of the very few, most familiar narratives and stories in the world. Even in all cultures. You, you cannot go down to the Torrance light section this week and walk it or drive it without seeing some nice, manger scenes. As a result, many people, even Christianized people, may tend, because of familiarity, to shrug off Luke chapter 2 as really having significant impact upon my real problems right now in this life. That's the first big barrier to our text this morning. And there's one other and that is, we humans who are not at all in touch with our dire situation 
concerning our relationship with God who created us. And therefore, we can walk by the manger scenes and say, God's a nice one. That's sweet. And it engenders familiar, yearly, traditional feelings with the lights and with Santa and reindeer and kings and baby Jesus. But our passage this morning is not there in order to engender good Christmas feelings that we've experienced in our culture since we were babies. Our text is there to say in history this actually happened and you cannot live without it or die without it. In other words, if the Bible is correct that Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that therefore, outside of this baby being born, outside of Christ, everybody stands condemned by God justly. If that's true, then this story cannot merely be what a nice manger scene. It is meant to be what the angels say. Good news that will produce, when you see it, great joy in your heart. This narrative that that some of us have manger scenes to represent is not like the narrative of Narnia and the version I saw this week. Or Peter Pan. Or Santa Claus legends. And they all have stuff to teach. And I like myth. And they teach good things about good and evil and love and caring. And myths can do that. This is not what this story is. The contention of this historian, Luke, is that these episodes that he recounts actually happened the way they happened. And they cannot therefore be shrugged off by somebody as mere religious feeling or opinion. So, let's go to it. Luke chapter 2. Look at the first five verses. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David, in order to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Okay, Luke sets this in its historical time frame. This is when Caesar Augustus was reigning over the Roman Empire. Now, this Caesar Augustus, he is Julius Caesar's great-grand-uncle, I mean, excuse me, nephew, of him. And then after Julius Caesar was murdered, it was divided up, that is the Roman Empire, into three. Remember, Julius Caesar is the first that really, where the power switched from the Senate to like this one guy. And it's divided up, and it got down to two people, Octavian and Mark Anthony, and you know, Anthony and Cleopatra, and then after that, at the Battle of Activium, Octavian became the lone ruler. The Senate gave him the title Caesar. August, Augustus, almost divine kind of thing. And he was born in B.C. 63. He died when Jesus was probably about 16 years old. He's been around a long time and here he is ruling. It's probably 4 or 5 B.C. Quirinius is governor over Syria. And so here's this decree. Everybody in the Roman Empire has to go get registered again. We want to make sure we're getting all the tax dollars from everybody who owes them. So go to your home 
town. Okay, now, you can think different thoughts about that. We have seen that God has sent His angel to Zechariah. He has sent His angel to Mary to tell her that you are now pregnant by the Holy Spirit without ever having sexual relations. God, can't you? She's nine months. You can't prevent Caesar from having Joseph and Mary have to travel with a nine-month pregnant woman, 80, 90 miles, five-day trip to Bethlehem? You can look at it this way. No, he can't because he created humanity. And human beings make choices. And God, He is God. And so He works with those choices. And He can kind of fix things up with them. But that's what Caesar did. So they got to go. Or, we could just be amazed that centuries earlier, through the prophet Micah, God predicted, quote, but you O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So that this God who did that centuries earlier could put into the heart of Octavian. Make everyone go to their birthplace and register. All, get it, not for the thousands of significant shakers and movers in the empire. Or rich people. All so that this insignificant carpenter and a teenage girl would end up in Bethlehem. Proverbs 21 simply says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord turns His heart wherever He will. And so there they are. They're going to Bethlehem. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 now. These two verses are profoundly simple, short, and to the point. And they are the beginning of the central event in the universe that does have ramifications on every human being ever created for eternity. Verse 6, And while... They were there. The time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. (laughs) So, they get to Bethlehem to register. And look, The inn is not even a nice Motel 6, okay? Travelers in that time, there are these inns, you can pay some money, and a place to sleep for humans, and a place connected to the inn, pretty much like stables to put your animals. There are no more places where the humans are sleeping. They end up, therefore, okay, it's better nothing, there's a little bit of shelter over them, with the donkeys and cattle and whatever kind of other animals people are traveling with. So there they are. She's nine months pregnant. It stinks. Animals go potty. She starts to have contractions. They get stronger and closer and stronger and closer. And she's a Bradley person. (laughs) 
And she's not doing the epiduro. The ground is cold. It's hard. And it's smelly. And her sweat and her embryonic fluid and now some blood and terrible screams are all mixed with the stench of where the animals are living. And then, I mean, i got to imagine, he just doesn't tell us. Some ladies mulling around are not going to probably leave poor Joseph just to deal with it by himself. The woman's screaming. So there's probably some ladies helping. But comes the time, the head. And another scream. And one last push. And the lady catches the baby. Joseph, here, hold. They get cloths and they wipe the blood and all the gook off of this baby. Hand the baby to its mother. Who knows how much time goes by. But it's as custom is now, they get the cloth and they wrap the arms and then the legs and the rest of the body. It could be cold, probably. April, March, April, May, probably. It's cold in the Northern Hemisphere. And then she needs a little sleep. Time to put this baby down. So they get the feeding trough and lay him there. He, the baby, maybe took a nap, wakes up, He is flailing. And as opposed to the Christmas carol, much crying does this baby make. There's no halo around Mary or Joseph or the baby. At the same time that this happened, throughout the Roman Empire, there are lots of babies being born with rich parents and silver spoons in their mouths. There are people in the world being born in palaces. And then there was this baby here, born of nobodies in a nowhere place, in a little animal shelter, lying in that little wooden construction or donkeys ate out of. And this is a glorious moment. This is the incarnation, infleshing, of God. The eternal second person of the Holy Trinity has been born fully human. Sixty years later, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul will comment on what we see. Quote, And though Jesus was in the form, the essence of God, He did not count His equality with God, which He has and has. He did not count His equality with God a thing to be held on to. But He made Himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of humanity. And being found in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The commentator, Kent Hughes, says it, I just think, straightforwardly and powerfully and picturesque this way. It was clearly a leap down 
as if the Son of God rose from His splendor, stood poised at the rim of the universe, irradiating light, and then dove headlong, speeding through the stars, over the Milky Way, to Earth's galaxy, past the moon, where He plunged into the huddle of animals. Nothing could be lower. This baby, like every other baby you've seen born, is the one of whom it was said in the beginning of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. This baby is the one who parted the Red Sea. And then closed it in order to kill the Egyptian army. The one who said to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That one is now lying in a feeding trough. The omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, um present, eternal God has become a baby. He is fully there. Lying in that manger. He's God. And He is clearly, fully human. Only one person. Not two persons. Not a human Jesus. And the divine Jesus. One Jesus. One person. Now has two distinct natures. If one were to think, okay, yeah, I believe that. He's God. He truly is divine. He has divine nature. And He only appeared to be human. You're dead wrong. And you're dangerously wrong. The Apostle John later will have to deal with that issue. And he will say, He who does not confess Christ is coming in the flesh. And by that term, he means is really and actually and truly and physically human is not of God. If you say that. In His incarnation, as we see and try to picture this historical event, He is a baby who's screaming and flailing and nursing. He never ceased to be Divine in His divine nature. It's just that that one eternal, without beginning, Creator, second person of the Trinity, took to Himself another nature He never had. And now does. Human nature. Not merely a human body you have loved ones who have died and you've ever visited their dead body, you know the difference between a human and merely a human shell. He became human. He took to Himself the immaterial, okay, non-physical faculties of humanity. What do you want to call that? A soul and the emotions, etc. The abilities to grow and to learn. He took it all to Himself just like you have. Yet, without sin nature. And never sinned. This baby now is not a divine human hybrid. 
His divine nature did not affect the human nature. And His human nature is not somehow different because the divine nature kind of changed it into some third hybrid kind of thing. No. 30 years, 33, 34 years later, when this baby is beaten and spit on and slugged and nailed to a piece of wood, or right now lying in the feed trough. He was not cheating. He's as truly human as they come. And so, see it. This baby will poop his pants in his diaper and he will cry because he cannot change himself. He will be hungry and he will scream until he's on mommy's breast. He will in the weeks and months to come as he lay like babies do will discover his hand. In a baby-like way. Do not think that Jesus, when He does that at three months old, is saying, (laughs) jokes on all you people, you think I'm looking at my hand like a baby? I'm God who created everything and I'm admiring my creation. Oh, and by the way, you better watch what you say around me because I understand Aramaic and Greek real well. He doesn't. He's a human baby. This is not a scam. This is the uncreated Creator becoming a genuine human being. In the womb of Mary, and nine months later, born. There is no earthly analogy for this. This mystery is incomprehensible. The eternal Son subjected Himself to His own creation with all of its finiteness and its limitations and its ups and its downs. He, that One, will experience total dependence upon His mom for a while. He, God, the Son, will experience growth in human reasoning and language skills. He will not know how to read and will learn how to read. He will be taught things he did not previously know. That is impossible for the divine nature. But it's not impossible for the human nature. His stepdad will train him and teach him the trade of carpentry. He will know things the next day that he didn't previously understand in his human nature. This Jesus crawled before he walked. He goo-gooed. He thought. He taught like talked like a toddler before he thought and talked like a man. He went from childhood into puberty and adolescence. He experienced all of it without sin. That's what the text is saying. The time came 
And she gave birth and wrapped him with cloth and laid him in a feed trough. Now, look at verses 8 and 9. About a mile to two miles away, outside the outskirts of Bethlehem, the text says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. So here's these shepherds. They're shepherds there in the culture. (coughs) Shepherds low on the totem pole. They're at night. They're protecting their flocks from robbers, thieves, wild animals. I don't know how many are there. Three of them? Twenty of them? I don't know. They're there. Probably getting a little cold. Sitting by a fire. You're always on edge. It's nighttime. Got to protect their sheep. And then, bam! The sky lights up like the noonday sun and then there's some dude standing in front of them. Just pause there and note. God doesn't do anything by accident. Notice the text does not say, and there were some scribes and some Pharisees and professionals of the law who were paying very close attention to the religious observances outside of Bethlehem. He says there were shepherds. And it's not an accident. God is never impressed with anybody. In fact, He usually purposes to magnify His grace by choosing people like shepherds. And that's not my opinion. That's Bible. The Holy Spirit says it through Paul this way in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider, Christian, Paul's just confident of the answer to this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you, there's some, but not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, for the purpose that He may bring to nothing the things that seemingly are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so He Sends the angel to shepherds. And they're freaked out. That's what you do when angels appear to you as angels. We've learned it. And so, pick up verse 10. The angel says to them, let's just get it Let's not make it all religious in a sense. Okay, he just says, look, guys, calm down. Fear not. Settle down. Again, not bad news. This is good news, appearance. Settle down. Here's the reason. I'm bringing you good news which is going to produce great joy for all the people. What I mean is this. Unto you, shepherds, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is going to be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a feed trough. He says to them about this baby, 
He is the Savior. He's going to save the baby. The people of Israel. He not only says, is this one the Savior? He says, He's the long-awaited Messiah. Shiach. The Hebrew for the anointed one. Now, anointing for the Jews and for the Hebrew Scriptures, you anointed prophets and you anointed priests. And they have all these prophecies as we've been seeing over the previous weeks that God promised to sit one from the loins of David on David's throne and to reign forever. So you, whether they call Him the Son of David, the King to come, they meant and they had the language of the anointed one. That's the one. The anointed of God, Messiah. Now, you, okay, Messiah is Hebrew. Translated into Greek, it's the word Christos, or where we get Christ. He, he's born for you in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ, Messiah. And then stunningly says, Christ, the Lord. Again, this is Greek here that Luke is writing in. In the word in Greek, kurios, Lord. When you go to the Hebrew Old Testament and you translate it, which was already done about 150 to 200 years before this, translated, when you come across two words, the word Adonai, which means sovereign one, which God refers to Himself Thousands of times in the Old Testament. And then, when you, you remember, see, not the word God, Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God, but when God revealed Himself to Moses, who, who do I say sent me? I am sent you. And out of that came not the word God or Elohim, came the one true God who created His personal name He gave to the Jews whether you say it Yahweh or however you want to say it, the Jews would not pronounce it. When you translate that, as the Septuagint did that was existing now, you translate it with the word kurios, meaning Lord. This is stunning. A Savior. Yeah, the Messiah. Lord has been born to you. Then, verses 13 and 14, notice. That's the angel speaking, and then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now, this is hard to imagine. What they're seeing. Uh, multitude here does not mean 50 heavenly hosts. How many hosts are angelic beings or creatures of God? And it doesn't mean there is 50 or 100 or 1,000. This multitude means it's almost innumerable to count. And they praise their creator. And they praise Him with the message that the shepherds are to hear. And notice it is first. In heaven, glory to God in the, in the highest. That's what He means. God, in heaven, glory, all glory, all, all praise. Everything's due to Him. And to earth. And on earth, peace among those with whom He's pleased. Peace to men. Generalized term for people. Who? Which people? The answer is those on whom God's favor rests. 
He says, the angels sing it. Shalom. Well-being. Really good to you from God on high. To you upon whom God's favor rests. Literally, His good pleasure. Now, let me just slow down here. The text is not saying God's favor is toward people who are of goodwill. It's not the message of the man you're seeing when you walk by it. It's not the message of Christmas. In the Greek, I mean just somebody you can just just you can do it. You can picture it. You get the word anthropos, anthropology, study of man, man. That's the generalized for humans, okay? Glory in highest, and on earth, peace to men, to people, to humans. And then, yadu ikas, of good favor. That yadu ikas is referring to who have favor from the God on high. Peace to you, who, upon whom, God on high has good pleasure toward. That's your only hope. Now, now why listen just very carefully. I'm going to quote one of the major commentators, Daryl Bach, on this word, Yadukias, meaning of good favor, of God's goodwill toward, or something like that. He says concerning this word, quote, it is almost a technical phrase in first century Judaism for God's elect. Those on whom God has poured out His favor. Now, listen very carefully. It goes on. This is important. In this context as a whole of Luke, first couple of chapters, God's elect would be the God-fearers which have already been mentioned in Mary's Magnificat. (laughs) Mercy to you who fear Him! That is, in other words, those who will respond to Jesus' coming. End quote of Daryl Bach. In other words, Christmas is good news for those undeserving people upon whom God's favor rests. Now, okay, I'm going to say the same thing. In other words, Christmas is really good news upon all who fear God and receive the message that the angels are telling the shepherds that this is the Savior, the promised Son of David, the Messiah, the Lord, all who receive the message of His life and His sacrificial death and His resurrection. Is that you? Christmas says, this is good news. That creates great joy. And for all others, It is, as the text will go on to say through Simeon in chapter 34, listen to what the Holy Spirit says prophetically through Simeon a few verses down. Here he is, Simeon. There's the baby, Jesus. By the Spirit he says, This child is appointed for the fall. And rising of many in Israel. And for a sign to be opposed. And the rest of the New Testament bears it out. He is the stumbling block upon where people crash. And die in their sin. And He's the one 
of the hope and the rising of many in Israel. And as Luke will make very clear in this Gospel and beyond. Let's read on. Verse 15 to 20. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying they had been told. Excuse me. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it marveled or wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and now seen, just as it had been told them. What is stunning about this is that the shepherds believed. And you can see it because they acted. Let's go. It doesn't seem like they even stopped in this context to consider the welfare of the sheep. How can we? Let's go see this. This is not an everyday experience. And I've got to think it's got to be comforting that it's plural shepherds. So you can say, did we eat too many mushrooms that were bad tonight? No, you saw the same thing then, right? It wasn't just my <laughs> hallucination. Okay. So they go, and they go in haste. They're probably running and walking and hopping little fences that they have to. And they get to Bethlehem, and there's the inn, and they know it's supposed to be with the animals, and this is probably somewhat connected. If it's up against a hill, it might be caves. Whatever. They're looking for the... And they look and look, and they find Mary and Joseph. And they see the baby. A normal baby. But they know something. And there's people mulling around. It makes it clear. They, this is what happened to us. And they wonder, they marvel. They Probably most of them just think, these are nuts or something. I don't get it. But they're saying, this is what happened. That's why we're, this is about the baby. Mary hears it. You gotta think, think, remember, picture Mary, okay? It's not normal to have an angel appear to you and say that without having sexual intercourse, you are conceiving a baby in your womb, okay? Who is the Messiah? And remember, God gave you this sweet little sign about her relative Elizabeth. She couldn't know it any other way. She, in haste, went and traveled a long way to see her. And then God confirmed it with that great sign as Elizabeth prophesied. That's right, this is not just not going nuts. It's real. And of course it took an angel <laughs> to convince Joseph. And now here she is. And she gave birth to the baby. And she hears these smelly shepherds say what happened to them concerning her baby. It's probably how we know this. She didn't forget this. She stored it up in her memory bank or in her heart. Years later, I don't know how much she said from up to then, things changed when her son was brutally murdered and then appeared to her and was raised. Don't think she just kept them there. Mary's around we don't know how many more decades after that. That's how we know these shepherds, probably. If not for some of the shepherds. And the text just ends it this way. 
The shepherds saw it. They preached it. They told people. And they're just blown away. And therefore, oh, we got to get back to our sheep. And they did so, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and had seen with their eyes. So, Christmas is about history. If what we have read here actually happened the way Luke records it, then the birth of the Savior, of God becoming a human being, confronts every man and woman and teenager and boy and girl with this. You can't shrug this off. You have to deal with it. You can't just walk by the manger scene and say how sweet and how inspiring. It's not what it is. It's either a lie or it's true. It means this eternal Creator broke in to human history in the birth of Jesus in fulfillment of many prophecies over centuries. And then He grew up and He lived a perfect, sinless, absolutely devoted, which is the essence of sinlessness, to His Father God in His humanity. He did what the first human failed to do. Adam sinned. And the second Adam lived in real, genuine humanity. Without sin. He did it. For you. If He's yours. He did it. So that His human life. From the womb. And crying. And pooping a diaper. And noticing His hand. And going through adolescence. And in obedience to a cross in all that He did, would be the way God judges you. Instead of putting up your own life. He lived. And He dealt with the other problem. You have sinned. And God's justice has to show itself or he'd be unholy. And so, without sin and thus deserving of any of the penalties of sin, he suffered and died a brutal death absorbing God's holy just wrath against sin. And then this baby born who grew up and did that was vindicated. The angel's message of who he was was vindicated because the grave could not hold him. A true, genuine human being after becoming hard in the body and cold on the third day, that human being, soul, and body was brought to a new 
transformed resurrection life. Confirming He did not die for any sin He committed. He died for the sheep of His pasture. And here's the kicker. That is the contention of this book of Luke and of the whole Bible is that is objective truth. It doesn't matter whether you believe it. It happened and that is what happened. And it will all become extremely clear to every human being one day. So, therefore... To know all that, that that happened, doesn't mean you're saved by Him. You're saved by Him if in relation to that historical, glorious news, this same baby who died and was raised, who sent God the Holy Spirit. Only if this baby now is born in you. That's how you know. He is in me and I am in Him. You see, the baby will grow up and He will say, unless you are born again, unless a spiritual birth in the heart concerning me happens, I cannot see nor enter the kingdom of heaven. Which simply means this. When you hear this message, when you hear the message that sometimes dangerously is too familiar, being raised in a church, when you hear this message, this good news that the angels announce, and you recognize that's true. That's true. And not only is it true, that is desirable to the taste buds of my heart. You're a believer. You believe. In other words, as John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only eternal Son to become a human being. So that whosoever would believe. That's what it means. That's, that's how you know. So if you, boy, am I born of God? Do you believe? Is that you? Is He His treasure? There's the evidence. You believe. And I want to close with one thing. Now, church, dear Believer, is He yours? Do you love Him? Do you love Him? Then hear this in the light of the baby crying because He's hungry. There is no human experience that you can go through that the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, cannot intimately and personally relate to. Not because He's omniscient. Because He became, He was, and He will remain forever human. That means He's right there that means He's in the midst of any and every up, down, pain, emotion. No human being has ever experienced the plunging depth from the heights He was to experience such low limitation that He did. So this next six days for Christmas, let this be one of 
your main meditations. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of our need. What a Savior! And I love manger scenes. And if you find one cheap for me, where I can get it, tell me. I want to buy one. I don't know where to find them. But let them, thrift store, thank you, let them have the impact of the text this morning. And as we close in these couple Christmas hymns and carols, sing to your Savior. Sing to His Father and your Father. Sing by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This great Savior has been born to save.